Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in once again. It's David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. Now we step back into the ring and back into time. Let's get hooked up with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, find out what's happening in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. What's up, Ron? Oh, beautiful day here, man. Very nice. A uh, little warmer than it has been. We've been in the in the low 80s, high 70s. Been beautiful stuff. But a uh, little, little warmer today, but I'll take it. Hey, you got to be feeling some cooler nights as opposed to what we're getting here in the Deep South. Oh, yeah, man. We get, uh, we get some stuff in the 60s. Oh, okay. Yeah. We won't hear or see of that till maybe October. So, thanks. Yeah. Man, thanks. Uh, you know, it's uh, <laughs> what a beautiful climate here. Wow. Yeah. And the mountains just make all the difference in the world, I guess. Yeah. That's uh, a... That's a lot of rain here, though, man. I mean, I guess that's why the, the Smokies are so green. Yeah. Wow, the mountains are just unbelievably green, and we get a lot more rain than we... They do, uh, say, uh, 40 miles... West of us in Knoxville. I can see that. Hey, we've certainly had our share of rain here. You're talking about green. Everything around us is very green. So we've really enjoyed some rain that we've had lately. Cooling it off a little bit, but not to not to the extreme that we've been accustomed to because we still get plenty hot here. That's for sure. All right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I saw, I saw that uh, you had some uh, little that stuff in the Gulf, man, been kicking around there. Yeah. Giving you all that rain, I guess. Indeed. Lately, showers coming from the Gulf, showers coming from the North, the South, East, West, so it's kind of crazy. But Hey, Stud, you want you want to jump right into this thing? we got a lot to cover today. Yeah, we do, man, as usual. Last <laughs> we've, been, uh, we've been covering a lot in the last few. And, uh, yeah. So, yeah, we better jump into this one. Uh, this one's a good one. All right. Really good one. I think it'll be very interesting. Indeed. Fans. I tell you what, fans around the world have raved about the riot that you described last Studcast where you were not only cut, but hit with a steel chair. I still can't imagine how with all those stitches, you never missed a match after that happened. So I don't know. Were you trying to set an example for the other guys? What was the point of that? If it wasn't that, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, I think you got the, you got the, the answer right there, man. You know, it was a perfect opportunity kind of to set the tone for all the wrestlers and not just that territory, but the other territory. I mean, stuff like that, word got around and everybody knew about it in both territories. 
And, uh, you know, the, I guess the lesson was, uh, you never miss a match. Right. You know? Right. So, uh, so, you know, and in, in my case, if, if one of the owners is willing to be there every night after something like that happens, uh, it kind of makes a statement to the other wrestlers. Yeah. And I, and I think it made a statement. I think I made a statement without saying a word. Yeah. So the other guys can't go, uh, Ron, I got a boo-boo. Uh, yeah. shut up, <laughs> shut up and get back in the dressing room. Uh, so really, I never thought about it like that. So judging from the many comments that we got, that story sure opened the eyes of a lot of new era wrestling fans, I'm sure, that could never even imagine something like that happening today. Uh, well, you know, there's not much comparison between the wrestling today and what was happening 44 years ago, man, in this sport. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I only had about 30 stitches, a little over 30 stitches put in me, and uh Compared to my father in 1966, who got 65 put in his side, and uh, he was a baby face tonight. That wouldn't happen. So, <laughs> right. right. Well, you can imagine what they would have done to the heel. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so maybe we can hear that story someday, but the title for this studcast intrigues me just as much. Tournaments in both territories. That's what it's called. Tournaments in both territories this episode. So what was that all about? Well, in Southeastern Wrestling, we had the opportunity uh, for the second ever car tournament there. Uh, we, it was, this was a beautiful 1978 Ford LTD Landau. Uh, beautiful cars back in those days. And instead of the three-month tournament for the Cadillac that we had had in 1976, about two years earlier, uh, and that was a one-night, uh, you know, that one was a three-month tournament. Uh, we had a one-night one this time. On July the 14th, 1978, and uh, the winner was going to drive out of there in a brand new car. And then the Gulf Coast Territory at the same time, uh, mm -hmm. we needed a TV trophy champion hmm. uh, like we had had in Knoxville since we'd started that promotion there. So July was a rating month, a TV rating month, and it was perfect for a month-long tournament on TV. To crown a TV champion and present him a trophy down there in the Gulf Coast. I'll tell you what, that sounds like a big crowd in Knoxville for the event. We'll be talking about there today and a big TV audience in the Gulf Coast for four weeks. So tell us where we're riding first today. I think we said in the last studcast that we're going to start this one with the results of the Gulf Coast card of July 7th, 1978. I think I got that right. And then we're going to take it from there. Yeah, I think that's exactly what happened. We finished everything, but we didn't get to telling about the results of that card. So, uh, and you're right on it again, my man. Uh, so that's what we promised. And uh, we're going to deliver as, as always, the best we can. And uh, we're not only going to get the results for that card uh, first today, but we're going to stay in the Gulf Coast territory uh, with the following week's mobile card. The TV results from that card and the attendance, and we're also going to take a quick final look at the success of that huge billboard buy, Southeastern Gulf Coast in June of 1978. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then we get that. We're going to head north, Southeastern Knoxville, for the second card tournament in its history. Then we're going to talk about the TV promoting that card tournament, the results of the matches, announce the winner of the beautiful Ford LTD Landau, and then we'll cover the attendance for that big night in Chilhai Park Amphitheater and discuss some talent that's moving around within the company. And then uh, for certain, uh, we're going to close this one. By golly, we're going to make it this time. We're going to get that learning tree question in on this one. Man. I, I knew you were determined on that. Our studcast 
have been so full of everything lately, we just haven't had the opportunity to get to a learning tree question for like three weeks now. So it sounds like we're getting we're going to start with the results of the Mobile, Alabama show of Tuesday, July 11th, 1978, before we move on to this week's cards. That's it. That's exactly the way it's going to happen in cool. the opening match. There on that July 11th card was supposed to be Wildman Fargo, who had just arrived in the Gulf Coast area versus Rocket Monroe. And for those that were with us last week, uh, they'll probably remember that uh, Fargo, due to an injury to Robert Gibson in the Gulf Coast Tag Championship match on the TV last week, became partners with Ricky Gibson. And on July 11th in Mobile, they were going up against the Assassins for the tag belts. The Assassins had taken from the Gibson brothers on TV uh, the Saturday before. So uh, the wrestling pro, Leon Baxter, came over from Dothan and uh, took Wildman Fargo's place in that first match, wrestled and beat Rocket Monroe. And uh, then in an all-against-and-all, all-against-all-four-man elimination match, we had David Schultz, Eddie Mansfield, Charlie Cook, and Mike Stallings. Uh, and the winner was going to get $1,000. And David Schultz and Mike Stallings ended up in the finals, the last two in the ring, and the, both of them ended up getting into such a brawl, they disqualified them both. So they're going to be coming back again uh, the next week against each other. And we're going to jump that prize from 1000 to 2000 for the winner. Then Tony Charles proved uh, in a Texas death match uh, that he could beat Eddie Sullivan in just about any kind of match, basically. And in spite of what Sullivan uh, the fact that Sullivan kept leaving the ring as many times as possible to keep from losing in his Texas death match. He wanted it, and then he wanted to keep his rear outside on the floor. Uh, so then Sullivan, uh, once the match was over and, uh, you know, Tony had beat him, then Sullivan attacked him, and then he threw him over the top rope. He ran him head first into the post, busted him open, and uh, and they were going to go at it again in this in this episode. Uh, in a lumberjack rules match, and uh, that was going to be put together to keep Sullivan in the ring. And then we got the much anticipated tag match from the Gulf Coast Championship. It's now owned by the Assassins after that uh, thing that happened on TV last week. And since their win and their injury to Robert Gibson six mm -hmm. days earlier mm -hmm. on TV, and that had Wildman Fargo taking Robert's place beside Ricky Gibson. And fans were really into this match. Uh, and, uh, Wildman Fargo certainly lived up to his name, and the match was wild to beat. To boot, uh, the match was declared a no contest. Uh, we'll be talking about that one. They're going to go at it again the following week. And then uh, there was a ten round boxing match between me, and Mr. <laughs> Goody Two Shoes, for the Gulf Coast wrestling belt. You know, <laughs> so we're boxing for a wrestling belt. Right. By golly, man, I, God, boy, I jabbed and jabbed him. I made, I, wow. It was, uh, people was cheering me. They, they, they love me. They love me, man. Especially watching me box, you know. And I ended up wow. taking the best, taking the best of him. Actually, you know, <laughs> had David Schultz bring me down a bucket of water, you know. So nothing, you know, well, it's a boxing match. Yeah, he, you need he a quarter saw man. that I was yeah. getting a little hot. And he came yeah. down. And he had a bucket of water, and he yeah. kind of splashed me off a little bit yeah. about six rounds. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, and my hand <laughs> fell down in that water. Oh no! The water can, the water bucket, man. And uh, right. And they rang the bell for the sixth round, and uh, wow, 
I hit him one time. It was it. Bang. He was gone. Uh, no. So, you know, okay. Uh, All right. Stud. So, and, I, and I end up to take back. I'm back being the uh, Gulf Coast champion, man. After that match. Okay. I'm assuming we're going to hear more about that coming up later stud. So in the meantime, have you, you've told us what happened on July 11th, the mobile card. Now you could tell us what was coming back the next week on July 18th of 78, the card in mobile. Okay. So uh, it was a triple main event card and the card opened with Charlie cook against Eddie Mansfield. The second match was a special challenge match between the last two guys who were left in that four-man elimination match from the week before, Schultz and Stallings. They'd both been disqualified, but uh, they're coming back to face each other, and the winner is going to get 2,000 rather than 1,000 like the original match was set up for. And then in the first of three main events, Tony Charles and Eddie Sullivan were going to continue their feud. But this time... Uh, Tony Charles kind of had his way, and he said, look, if he's not going to stay in the ring, you know, let's just uh, get those wrestlers outside of the ring to throw him back in in the lumberjack match. <laughs> so that's what match they had. This was going to be a lumberjack match. Wrestlers going to be around the ring, and mm-hmm. that was they, they were there to keep contestants on the inside. Right. Then you had Ricky Gibson and Wildman Fargo getting their second mobile shot at the tag title of the new champions, the Assassins obviously managed by Billy Spears. And this time, there wasn't going to be any disqualification. Uh, they were going to let it go, man. So the last match of the night was a return match, you know, as the new champion. Mm-hmm. And, then as, and being a great champion, I was going to give the guy that I beat a good chance. So I was giving Mr. Goody Two Shoes an opportunity to win his belt back. <laughs> uh, always the giver, Ron. All right, so that was another outstanding card, a $2,000 challenge match, a lumberjack match, and two title matches. So what was on the TV that helped promote that card? Well, every July was the fourth TV rating period of the year. Dave, uh, you know, uh, you're familiar with that type of stuff, with those rating books. And, yep, yep. Uh, July of 1978 had five Saturdays in it. So the first Saturday of the month had already passed us, but the rating period was for the last four Saturdays of 1978, the month of July. Hmm. Hmm. So this TV was the first of that four July, those four July TV shows that were during that rating period. So this TV and the next three were extremely important to the company. I mean, we're just a brand new company. This is basically going to be our first meaningful TV rating that uh, we're going to see, uh, that station managers are going to see. So it's important that really we do the best we can to get some some audience. So the main focus for these ratings, for the rating this time, was going to come from a month-long tournament. We're going to take a month to crown the Southeastern Gulf Coast TV champion. And that winner is going to receive a huge trophy for his victory, similar to the big, huge trophy that we had in Southeastern Knoxville. So the show opened, man, with the huge trophy sitting on the desk between Charlie Platt and Gordon Soley, and they briefly explained what the beautiful trophy was for, that there were eight wrestlers in a championship tournament that would, that day, uh, to, to start that day, that's going to be the first ever uh, the Southeastern Gulf Coast TV champions, champions decided from this tournament. And the competitors were going to be Bob Armstrong, Wildman Fargo, 
David Schultz, Charlie Cook, Eddie Mansfield, Tony Charles, Mike Stallings, and Eddie Sullivan. And so they invited to the set four of those eight wrestlers in the tournament and let those four guys pull the names of their opponents from a hat. Hmm. So then there would be two TV championship match on that very TV show. So they're going to get the tournament started that day. So uh, out they came. They invited out uh, the four guys they invited out was Wildman Fargo, Charlie Cook, Mike Stallings, and Bob Armstrong. And then they, they let Fargo go first. They let him pull a name from the hat. He pulled out David Schultz. And they announced right then that Wildman Fargo and David Schultz were going to be wrestling in the first tournament match. And it was going to be the first match on the TV show that day. Start, so they're going to start the day off with the match for mm. the television championship. Wow. And then Charlie Cook stepped forward. And he drew from the hat. He pulled out Eddie Sullivan's name. And they announced, obviously, that Cook and Sullivan were going to be wrestling in the second tournament match and that it was going to be the last match on this TV show. So then Mike Stallings picked next. He got Tony Charles. And, uh, and uh, he would be uh, wrestling Tony Charles on the first match of next week's TV show. Hmm. Then Bob Armstrong picked last. He picked Eddie Mansfield out of the hat, and he would be wrestling him on the last match of the next week's TV show. So they thanked all the four wrestlers. They hadn't explained everything yet. And they said that they would be back and explain the rest of the tournament, how it's going to work later on the personality profile. And to get the show going, which was so important, and I think uh, people realize, especially those in the industry, that you want to get to capture that audience right away. We jumped right into the very first match, the first uh, TV championship match. Mm -hmm. So the bell was rung immediately at that point and the huge trophy was placed out in the center of the ring and then the first southeastern gulf coast tv championship match was introduced and started it was Wildman fargo david schultz uh, both of them entered the ring that's a very unique beginning to a wrestling show and then straight into action so how did the fans react and who won that first tv championship match well, I was pleased, man, with the fans' reaction. I, I figured that the TV tournament is going to have uh, more more credibility and more interest than a regular TV match for sure. And it actually was turned out to be much better than I anticipated it would be. And I could tell right away that this wasn't going to be just an ordinary match that they watch every week. And David Schultz, who was trained by my grandfather's brother, Herb Welch, was beginning to come, become a star in the sport. And uh, he's, he's going to go on in his career to become one of the most controversial wrestlers ever, to mm -hmm. say the least. Mm -hmm. And he's going to become a Hall of Famer. Mm -hmm. So uh, Wildman Fargo was no match for the determination and the desire, man, of a young David Schultz, man. He was a go-getter in those days, wanting to make a name for himself and well on his way to doing it. So then after the win, uh, Schultz came to the set, and he was all pumped up from his victory. And uh, he was in there. He was out there for the first interview with Mike Stallings. And uh, Mike Stallings had pre-recorded his comments for this interview about the upcoming $2,000 challenge match uh, that's going to be the following Friday night with, uh, from that four-man elimination match. So the money, had, like I said, had grown from $1,000 to $2,000. And Schultz made his. It was about a minute for Schultz, and it was about a minute for Mike Stallings. Then the second segment of the show opened. Uh, and it was with me going to the set, 
with Charlie and Gordon. I had just won the belt, and I was carrying my newly won Gulf Coast Heavyweight Championship. That won from Mr. Goody Two Shoes uh, by boxing, by winning the boxing match for a wrestling belt. <laughs> and, and I held the belt up for the studio crowd to see it. And, and then I bragged to both commentators about how the fans love me, man. Even though we were, they were all booing me like crazy, you know. <laughs> Oh. Uh, I said, boy, don't they love me, man? Look, I, they <laughs> know what a great star I am, man. You know, and, and I kept that heat briefly, man, but only briefly because here come Mr. Goody Two Shoes to the ring, man. So <laughs> that kind of that kind of slowed me yeah. down a little yeah. bit. So, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so in his controversial loss, man, only made him uh, more popular. You know, once once they people saw that he had lost, I think I think that helped him become more popular, and he made. <laughs> Quick work of his TV opponent, which was the way he usually handled those TV matches. Mm-hmm. He won with his sleeper again. And then we both interviewed about our upcoming return match for the belt. <laughs> this time, Armstrong <laughs> pointed out very clearly that it's a wrestling match. <laughs> right. It's not going to be a boxing match. I think you're right, though, about the loss. It made. I think it did make him popular. It showed that the, the dude is struggling. He almost had that thing. And he's, he's not giving up. So I think that's the fortitude of the man. All right. So was it time for the personality profile and the rest of the explanation of the TV trophy championship? Yes, it was. It certainly was, my man. Uh, cool. Charlie and Gordon, man, had that big trophy again sitting between them. It was a big, tall one, similar, very similar to the one in Knoxville. Uh, and they began to explain how the rest of the tournament would go, that there would be one more tournament match at the end of this show with Charlie Cook versus Eddie Sullivan. And then next week, the second round of the tournament would start. would have Tony Charles versus Mike Stallings in the first match of the next show. And it would end up in the last match of the next show with Bob Armstrong against Eddie Mansfield. Uh, then the third week of the tournament, they said the two winners of, the, of today's matches were going to wrestle against each other. And that would be David Schultz against whoever won against in the Charlie Cook and upcoming uh, Charlie Cook and Eddie Sullivan match. And uh, that then when that match took place, the winner of that was going to go to finals. And then on next week's show, the two winners of those two matches on that show were going to wrestle each other again on that third week. So there's going to be two live matches on this one, two live matches on the second week, two live matches on the third week. And then the last Saturday of the month of July of 1978, the two unbeaten wrestlers were going to meet for the trophy and the honor of being the first Southeastern Gulf Coast TV champion. Wow. Okay. So typical of you, Ron, imagine that a four week tournament for the Gulf Coast TV championship that just happens to start on the first week of the July, 1978 national TV rating period and ends on the last week of that rating period. What a coincidence! What a coincidence! Uh-huh. That really was strange, man. Uh, you know, and, and you know, if since that happened, it just might build a big number for one of those first rating periods ever for the Southeastern Gulf Coast territory. I always yeah. say, you never, you never miss an opportunity. It seems like you can see it and you take it, and I, that that is so smart when it comes to guerrilla marketing. So, who was in the third match of this TV? Well, Ricky Gibson and Wildman Fargo, they started this third segment out. They joined Charlie and Gordon at the set. They watched two different videos. 
The first video was from the last TV show where Billy Spears had nailed Robert Gibson with a wicked chair shot. It knocked him unconscious, man. Uh, he got pinned and it put him out of action with a concussion. Uh, and then they changed gears and they watched the second uh, tag match, one that was recent that uh, showed uh, Wildman Fargo with Ricky Gibson against the Assassins, trying to get the championship back from those guys. And uh, wow, it was a it was a wild affair, man. So uh, so when they finished watching that match, before they left the set, the new Gulf Coast Tag Champions, the Assassins, entered the ring for the next match. They were going to be in the next match. And uh, and uh, Ricky and uh, Wildman Fargo are still sitting at the set. And uh, so when they entered the ring with their manager, Billy Spears, he was carrying their championship belt. And as soon as they got in the ring, they both those two big old boys in the black outfits, man with the hoods on, dropped down on one knee facing Fargo and Gibson, who were still at the set. And, and Billy Spears draped the belts over their shoulders, and he stood behind them with a big grin on his face. Well, that's all it took. <laughs> Fargo... <laughs> Fargo was a nut anyway. Fargo just took off for the ring, and so did Ricky, man. And uh, all hell broke loose. I mean, it wasn't, they weren't supposed to be the rest, guys wrestling them. They just went anyway. So the team that was scheduled to wrestle them was already in the ring. And as soon as those guys saw, saw Gibson and Fargo running to the ring, they ran from the ring. They went on out the back door of the building, man. <laughs> so, and then the fight, man, uh, that had been going on every night for the past week since Robert Gibson had got hurt, uh, it got more violent right there on television. So Charlie Platt and Gordon, uh, for the one of the few times, man, lost all control of the TV show at that point. The referee in the ring, uh, when it started, called for the bell uh, to try to get it stopped, but it only got worse. Then they grabbed him. Somebody, one of them grabbed him and threw him over the top rope. Mm. And then the second referee came down trying to help, but he didn't fare any better. And wow. uh, it was more, I mean, it's probably at least five minutes of real bedlam, man. And the studio was obviously going crazy. And then finally, both Charlie and Gordon started begging for help from the back, <laughs> for, you know, for for somebody to come and help stop this. So then Bob Armstrong came, uh, Tony Charles ended up coming, Mike Stallings ended up coming, and uh, they were able to kind of pull Gibson and Fargo off the big men in black long enough for them and uh, horrified-looking Billy Spears at this point. They, they Those three ran back to the dressing room, glad to get there in one piece. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, sanity hadn't really even fully returned when Billy Spears and his assassins came to the set for the third interview. Billy was still a little concerned, and uh, and he didn't have time to say much of anything because Gordon and Charlie ripped into him. Man, they reprimanded him for what he did, what he had just caused. And he didn't get to say anything about what his team was going to do that Friday night. That just mm -hmm. uh, hmm. He just took, a, he took a, a, a rear end chewing from those guys. <laughs> so then the show uh, finally got back on track as the TV trophy was again placed in the center of the ring for the last match of the show. And Charlie Cook and Eddie Sullivan got set to go at it in the next TV championship trophy match. And Charlie Cook got the win. Uh, Charlie Cook, man, had for a long time at this point been a fan favorite. I mean, they really loved him there. 
and uh, he was a great wrestler. He was a very underrated wrestler. So then Wildman Fargo and Ricky Gibson, they finished the show with the last interview. And and both of them, uh, unlike Spears, apologized to Charlie and Gordon for what had happened earlier. And Ricky told fans, you know, that a condition of his brother, that he was going to be out for a while. He was under concussion protocol until further notice. And and nobody knows how long that can be when you get one of those concussions. So uh, Fargo just kept wow. saying when he had a chance that Billy Spears is going to pay for your <laughs> brother brother's hurt, being hurt, Ricky. <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah. he just kept promising that, that they, fans, that they hadn't seen anything yet. What just happened right there, he said in the ring a few minutes ago, <laughs> that's just a taste of what's to come. Yeah, it sounds like it. All right, that's a great TV, Ryan. So. It had like a little bit of everything in it. So what happened six nights later in Dothan? Well, Charlie Cook beat Eddie Mansfield. Uh, David Schultz won the $2,000 challenge match with Mike Stallings. But Stallings went after him when the match was over, and uh, and he ran the Schultz into the post. And, uh, and Schultz made uh, it back to the dressing room. He was a bloody mess. Then uh, Tony Charles won the lumberjack match. But when it was over, it was Eddie Sullivan that turned to, to, to have his say. And he grabbed the microphone and he challenged Tony Charles to a loser leaves southeastern Gulf Coast match. And uh, Tony obviously went over and got the microphone. And he says, you got it, mate. So, so that, that one was set up for the next week. Then the Gulf Coast tag match was another all-over-the-building fight, man. It just left all the fans going crazy and wanting more, man. They loved these, this uh, Fargo and Ricky team. And, uh, wow, it, it, they, they really had something going. And in my Gulf Coast title defense, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, Bob Armstrong, was all over me, man. And, uh, and he was so mad about what had happened in the boxing match that he kept trying to constantly trying to use his karate training from the Marines, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and it kind of forced me to get myself disqualified on purpose to save the belt. You know, he just tried to catch me with one of those karate chops and, uh, you know, I wasn't prepared for it. Uh, I hadn't trained for it. And, uh, and he, he, I guess he was really furious that he hadn't, he couldn't recover his belt. And, uh, so he did the unthinkable after the belt. Uh, I was getting to my feet and uh, trying to leave as the gentleman I was. And he hit me for no reason with an illegal karate chop. What? Right in the throat. Are you serious? Yeah, man. Oh, my yeah. God. I can't imagine that. Yeah, oh I know. My I know. God. Surprising. It was really surprising to me. Yeah. You know? Yeah, sure. Throat. throat. Yeah. And he, he karate chopped me right in the throat, man. And it cut it closed, kind of closed off my breathing, man. I couldn't breathe, man. And I had to be helped from the ring, man. It wasn't, but it wasn't going to be the end, because the next week I was going to bring in my great friend, <laughs> the United States Karate Champion Ron Slinker, mm -hmm. and I'm bringing him down to South Coast Gulf Coast, the Southeastern Gulf Coast, and he's going to be there specifically to teach Bob Armstrong a lesson he would never forget. <laughs> oh man. Okay, so things were going from bad to worse. So how about the attendance in Dothan that Friday night? And you said you were going to give us some more information on the billboard buy along the Gulf Coast and lower Alabama specifically. 
Well, we broke, man, the 4,000 attendance mark in Dothan for the first time. Wow. Over 4,000 people. Wow. Wow. And considering we started there on March the 3rd with 1,500 and uh, now six months later, well, that's less than six months. Uh, we're at uh, we're at uh, 4,000, man. So, wow. The, the business was just it was tremendous. And, and and part of it was the, the billboard, you know, and uh, you, so the billboard buy got finished on that very week. Uh, it, uh, it had started on June the 1st and it ended on that Friday night, July 14, 1978. But as with all kinds of advertising, man, when you're in that business, uh, you really don't know exactly what it is that if you've got more than one type of advertising out there, you don't know what the What's each a, one of them is doing for you. Right. What's effective. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can't really, you know, you go, well, yeah, I've got these four things I'm doing. Which one of them that has really made this happen? Yeah. But I do know that during that six-week period from July 1st to June, from June 1st, 78, to July 14th, 78, we added 8,000 fans a week to our number. Whoa, okay. So, well, uh, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to billboards. So uh, don't forget that we also still had – Three more weeks of the billboards in the mobile market to make up for that three weeks of TV shows we lost. Oh, yeah. From the David yeah. Schultz and Charlie Cook incident. So we hadn't yeah. seen all of what was going to happen yet. It's cool to see results and then be able to pinpoint something. And at some point, you probably know for certain it was about those billboards and the, the incredible spread you had. So really another fast-moving, fast-paced, fact-filled first half of this studcast. I can't believe I just said that. All right. So before we take a break, maybe you can give us a quick update on new things on the classic continental wrestling.com streaming channel that's really taken over. Yeah, man. Uh, and I appreciate, man, uh, getting get me on track there. Uh, I certainly want to mention it, man. The fourth superstars of the past uh, is, is on there now. The fourth and fifth Brutus chapters are there. Uh, there's a new Bobby Shane stud story, uh, which is, wow, about the poor, brilliant, fantastic athlete that lost his life in the plane crash with Buddy Colt. And, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, the, the five, there's five Southeastern TV shows from the month of January 1981 that's just gone on there, too. Wow, okay. So we've got Southeastern TV on there, which is, man, we've got a bunch of them on there already. Yeah, you know, it's kind of figure trying to figure that up as you were talking about it. So that's probably another four hours of new content. Can't wait to see those, especially 1981 Southeastern TVs. Myself, hey, I tell you what, let's take let's take that break now. And when we come back, we're going north to Knoxville and a tournament there for a brand new 1978 Ford LTD Landau. That's coming up when this studcast continues right here. Be sure to stop by and say hello to Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud at the Smoky Mountain Fan Fest Comic Con, Saturday, July 30th and Sunday, July 31st in the Gatlinburg Convention Center. Ron will have photos, t-shirts, Continental DVD 5 packs, and, and his thrilling Smoky Mountains National Park Lion Novel, Brutus. Everything will be autographed personally to you. Don't miss your chance to meet the stud. All right, Studcast fans, welcome back once again. So we're back into it. A two, a two tournament Studcast in the week of July 14th, 
1978. It's time again to hear about the Southeastern Knoxville Car Tournament. Where was it taking place, and what was on that card for that big event? Well, obviously, you're right. It was July, Friday, July 14th, 1978. It was taking place in Chilhowee Park Amphitheater. The main event was a 13-man, one-night tournament for a beautiful Ford LTD Landau, man. And what a beautiful car it was. And here was the first-round pairings for that tournament. Ronnie Garvin against the great Malenko. Phil Hickerson versus Bob Rue. Our brother, Robert, versus Dennis Convey. Kevin Sullivan against Ron Wright. Jimmy Golden versus Jerry Lawler. Uh, Rip Smith versus Don Carson. And the newcomer, Abdul Zatar, had drawn a bye and was going to get to go directly into the second round without having to win in the first round. So there were six matches in the first round, four in the second round, two in the third round, and one more in the finals. So they got a great card there in Knoxville. Uh, and there was a one added event for the Southeastern Championship to this card. That was the Mongolian Stomper, managed by Don Carson. He was defending his title against Ron Slinker, who was seconded by Ronnie Garvin. Okay, so 14 matches with a new car being driven out of the park by somebody, by one lucky wrestler. So before I ask about the TV, was Chilhowee Park set up so the car could be on display the whole time? Was it visible to the fans? Well, we're going to get there, my man. Uh, Brad, <laughs> you're, you're, you're ahead of the game, man. Great question. Uh, yep. But uh, I'm going to explain how that went uh, down, man, you know, right. because that's important. All right, on the way there. So what was on the TV six days later building up and promoting this incredible card? Well, before we get into the actual TV show, let's remind everybody that uh, this was the beginning of that same Arbitron and Nielsen, Ra Nielsen rating period that was happening 500 miles south on those Gulf Coast TV stations. So I had talked to Rob, who uh, didn't know a whole lot about that type of thing, and, uh, and made him aware that the month of July uh, had four, <laughs> that there were four rating periods per year. Uh, and they were all extremely important, and that July was one of those four, and that uh, he had to handle the four important TV shows appropriately. He's going to have four opportunities to keep that growing uh, trend we had on those Knoxville TV ratings. So this show uh, opened up with a tight shot or less, running down what was one of four, uh, was the first of four great TV shows in July. Rob did a great job putting these together. And this one was going to have two championship matches on it. One was a TV championship trophy match in which the champion, Dennis Condry, was defending against Jimmy Golden. And then uh, we were going to close out the show with a Southeastern championship match with the champion Mongolian Stomper managed by Don Carson against a current Memphis star that was on fire, and they named him that. Tommy Wildfire Rich was going to be against the Mongolian Stomper in the last match on this show. So when the cameras backed away, there was Les and kind of a new face. There wasn't a wrestler's face sitting next to him this time. It was ring announcer Phil Rainey. And behind them on the big, huge set was a still shot of that beautiful new car. So uh, Phil started right off, and he had seen the car earlier in the day and he just, he just, he just flat out told Les, you know, I, 
I was blown away, Les, because that's the most beautiful car I think I've ever seen, man. <laughs> you know, and he and he says, yeah. uh, you can tell by looking at the, the photo there. And he goes, and, and, uh, and I'm sure, Les, if they'll roll the video, because I know he says you were out there earlier this morning shooting a piece of video and going to show the fans this car, man, mm -hmm. up close mm -hmm. and personal. And uh, he was more excited about it than Les was. <laughs> he said, yeah, I can't yeah. wait, man, because I, I know you're going to give fans a bird's eye view, man, of what some lucky wrestler is going to be driving away in six nights from now. So, uh, wow. so you could hear, and once the video started, you could hear the reaction of the studio audience. They were watching their studio monitors because, you know, it was, it was taped. And, uh, and as soon as the car hit the screen, you could hear the audience, the, <laughs> the studio crowd go, whoa. <laughs> you could hear them buzzing like, wow, yeah. what a car. So in, in just a three-minute video, that's about all this took uh, to really go around and give people a chance to see it from the front, the back, and inside the whole deal. Uh, he had everybody ready, man, for that one-night <laughs> tournament that was coming up. <laughs> all right, and if I'm correct, this was this was like only the second car ever given away by Southeastern Wrestling. That's correct. At right. This point, at that point, uh, this was only the second car ever given away, and uh, the other one was a Cadillac in 1976, mm -hmm. and that was in a three-month-long tournament, not a one-night deal, and it was won by Bob Armstrong. Mm -hmm. and, uh, this time, for the first time, it's going to be done in one night. Mm -hmm. Mr. So, uh, Mr. Goody Two Shoes. Uh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Goody Two Shoes, okay. man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, he's been around for a while. Yeah, that guy. So, so Phil, you know, kind of he had left the set uh, while the video was on, and uh, he went straight to the ring for the introduction of the first match, and uh, Jimmy Golden was also in the ring. And uh, then uh, he introduced Jimmy, who was there, and then uh, when he finished, he introduced Dennis Condry as he was coming in the studio with his manager, Ron Wright. And Ron was carrying the huge TV championship trophy to the ring. So uh, so Rob told me that they had a great match. You know, I, I didn't see this TV, but uh, Rob and I discussed it, as we do did everyone back in those days. And Jimmy Golden ended up winning the trophy, man. With a desperation small package maneuver, Rob said that when everybody thought he was beaten and didn't have a prayer of winning, he hooked a small package. And Rob said the studio exploded, man. So uh, Jimmy Golan ends up with the big trophy. And then in the first and second uh, interview segments of the show, they were all pre-recorded. And that way we could give everyone in the tournament an opportunity to talk just briefly about their opponent. Uh, and uh, their opponent in the first round uh, in the car tournament. So the first six of these guys, they had an opportunity in that first interview to talk was Phil Hickerson, talked about his opponent, Bob Roop. Bob Roop talked about Hickerson. Rip Smith and uh, Don Carson had a chance to talk, and Kevin Sullivan and Ron Wright had a chance to talk about the car and their opponents. But then was Ronnie Garvin time. And he made his first match in several weeks, man. He hadn't been on TV for quite a few weeks. And, uh, wow, that match was an eye-opening experience, man. Uh, he won, obviously, jumping off the top rope, as he normally did in his opponent's throat. But he didn't do it just once. He did it twice, back-to-back. -back. <laughs> he wow. didn't think he had done it good enough, I guess, the first time. Mm. He went back and jumped off on him a second time. Wow. And uh, then the next six wrestlers in the tournament uh, were heard from. 
uh, Garvin and the great Malenko had their comments about each other and then the car. And that was followed by Dennis Condry and his opponent in the tournament, my brother Robert. And it finished with the new tape. The new TV champion, Jimmy Golden, that had just won that TV trophy. Uh, he was going to be against the Southern heavyweight champion, Jerry Lawler, in the first round. And then the Jerry Lawler even cut us an interview from Memphis and sent it in. So we even had Lawler on that show. <laughs> so the only wrestler not interviewed in this, that was in the tournament, was that newcomer, Abdul Sattar. Huh. And, uh, and he wasn't in the first round because he had, He'd uh, drawn a buy that put him into the second round automatically. So then we got to the personality profile all about the car tournament and uh, just how difficult it was to win an event like this. Uh, these one-night tournaments are just, well, if you're a wrestler, they're, they're impossible almost to win. you know. And the winner in this one had to win at least four times in one night. And uh, that's pretty darn hard to do, man. Wow. You've got to be in great shape. You want to get there. Four opponents. Know? Yeah, wow. Yeah. Four in one night. Yeah. And uh, so Les had a special guest with him on the show, and it was the owner of the Ford dealership that presented the car. <laughs> and it turned out he was a huge wrestling fan himself. You know, as Les started talking to him, he found out the guy says, oh, I know everything's going on. Oh, heck yeah, you know. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, so Rob said he listened to the profile and he said when Les told him we're going to do the this car dealer he said I thought you know I'm not so sure about how that's going to go <laughs> and then Rob told me he said geez man it was tremendously interesting you know it was in a very unusual profile and he said at the end of it he said Les asked the owner who he thought it was going to win the car oh wow yeah and he said the owner said uh, I think Ronnie Garvin is going to be the guy that drives <laughs> out there with the Cadillac <laughs> you know, and Ronnie was the wrestler that ended up in the finals for the first one for the Cadillac two mm -hmm. years earlier. Wow! But, uh, and we know what happened in that one. <laughs> okay, so a pretty good pr prediction on the dealer's part. So the first half of this TV had definitely done a great job of building up, promoting, just really selling this car tournament. So what was the last half of the TV show about? Well, Rob was booking this one, and, uh, you know, he had focused basically on the only match left on that upcoming Friday night card, and uh, that wasn't related to the car at all, and that was the Ron Slinker seconded by Ronnie Garvin uh, uh, for the chance to win the Southeastern title from the Mongolian Stomper managed by Don Carson. And uh, Slinker came into the studio. He was on the third match, and he had Ronnie Garvin with him because he's going to be seconding him the next Friday night, and boy, they entered with a huge round of applause. Ronnie had already had a win. Now Slinker's got an opportunity. And Slinker, man, was a young and improving, uh, great wrestler. I mean, he was a he was a obviously tremendous karate guy because he was a national champion. But uh, he was he was he was fast improving consistently, and he got himself a quick win. And he and Garvin made the third interview of the show by themselves. And then the last match of the TV, that one could have been a main event, man, anywhere in the country. The champion Mongolian stomper managed by Don Carson was defending against Wildfire Tommy Rich, who at this point, he's not a, he's not a, a young uh, <laughs> want to be. He's a, there, he's a guy that's there. He had become a sensation, man, on the far side of the state in Memphis. He was a star in Memphis, bona fide at that point. So uh, 
And Rob even told me when we talked about it, he said, he said that I was totally amazed at how much better Tommy had, had become in such a short period of time. And uh, he said he was uh, still not ready, though, for somebody like the Stomper. <laughs> and uh, and he, he said Tommy ended up getting cut, and he ended up bleeding pretty badly. Stomper stomped him in the face quite a few times, I guess. And uh, wow. he said, but Tommy, man, fought back hard, man. He said it just... He said it, the stomper could not get him. He couldn't pin him. He couldn't make him quit. And then he said, uh, finally, Don Carson got involved, and the referee's attention was drawn by the stomper, and Carson got him with his loaded glove. And, uh, and uh, wow, he said after that, the uh, stomper got the, end, the win pretty easily. But he said they didn't leave. They, didn't, they weren't finished. So he said both the stomper and Carson, uh, then they started putting the boots to uh, laying there, a poor old Tommy man. Uh, mm, who's, who's mm. Basically, Rob said they, he was out. He, they were just stopping him, and he was the, his head was just flying around here and wow. there. And, uh, yeah. and then, uh, so Ronnie Garvin and Ron Slinker, they came to the ring, got in the ring. As soon as they did, uh, obviously, Stalker and Carson got out, and there was no contact between them. But there's going to be plenty of it the next Friday night. So then, Cobb, Stalker and uh, Carson, they finished the TV show, and Carson made some really powerful comments on the end of the show about hurting Ron Slinker and sending him out of Southeastern the next Friday night, just as he they had done with bloody Tommy Rich here a few minutes ago. He looked just like Tommy Rich. Holy cow. Another great TV show for real right there on the same Saturday. Same Saturday, 500 miles north of the Southeastern Gulf Coast Territory. So what was the result of this July 14th, 78 tournament? for the Ford LTD Landau and the Southeastern Championship match in Chilhowee Park. Well, Rob, let's just start out with talking about the the night. Uh, this, I guess I set up the evening, I guess, is a good way to put it. Mm -hmm. Rob said the mm -hmm. night was beautiful. He said the amphitheater was packed. He said the matches were excellent. And the crowd, he said, was absolutely electric. He said uh, that we had talked to... Uh, me and him had talked about how to protect the car so that it couldn't be damaged, right? Like the oh, last one did when yeah. Ronnie Garvin <laughs> took, took the windshield out of it. Yeah, stanchion through the windshield. Yeah. Okay. So, you okay. know, Rob yeah. and I talked about this before the, he ever went down to the park to have the event. And, uh, and as was the case, you know, I just mentioned it, what had happened to the windshield and the Cadillac. So even though I was four, 500 miles away, I knew exactly how to accomplish what was necessary because I was very familiar with that outside arena, man. We had been in there at this point for four, four years, close to four years. And everyone who entered that arena bought a ticket. There was a small building in the front of the amphitheater, and that building uh, included the dressing rooms for mm. both the baby faces and the heels on mm -hmm. the opposite ends of that building as well as a big uh, platform that the ring and all the where all the ringsiders set set was was behind the back part was on the back part of that building where you came in and as you entered the complex and and if you were sitting in the huge grandstand you had to walk past that big raised platform where the ring and the ringside chairs were and uh, to get into the grandstand and if you sat in the grandstand, you looked down on the ring and ringsiders because the grandstand was built back into a mountain. So, you know, the higher you got, the further down the ring and the ringsiders was. 
but uh, it, was, it was tremendous views. Uh, there were these huge grassy areas, and you talked about one of mentioned it a couple times last week, maybe mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. the grassy areas on both sides, and even at the top of the grandstand, there was a grassy area. Yeah. So that when the grandstand, which held about five thousand people, got full, then uh, there were places that other people beyond that could even go. So uh, you had those grassy areas on the top and on the sides, and, uh, and then there was this tall chain fence around the entire complex. You had to have something there to make sure people didn't get in for free, to control people from entering for free. And then uh, facing down uh, from the grandstand was this large area off to the right side of the ringside and the ring where all the concessions were, where you went to buy the soft drinks and the popcorn and uh, that we had great concessions back in those days. Uh, so as I described this to Rob, we're talking about it, <clears throat> he understood where that area I was describing was, where the concessions are over there, Rob, uh, and they're going to have, and uh, he knew that there was a gate there and that vehicles used to come in that gate and unload their concessions. And then once the event started, just before the event started, all those vehicles moved outside that gate. So, uh, there was no, plenty of area for the for the fans to be in to, to get their drinks and things so again uh david as i like to say presentation was everything my man <laughs> so uh fans weren't but you know they weren't not they were not going to see the car until all the concession vehicles had been removed mm -hmm. and the bell was rung to start the matches gotcha yeah the, outside then the venue had a completely different feel about it you know the outside place, that the uh, amphitheater, man, it, this had a different feel than the Coliseum did. And uh, and the fans could tell it. Uh, the fans kind of made that difference. When the bell rang for the matches in the Coliseum, there was hardly ever a reaction from the fans. When the bell rang to start the first match, they, 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 they didn't react like they did. Outside in the park, it was just the opposite. When the bell rang at 8.30, it was twilight time. It was just beginning to get dark. That then that small mountain complex had its giant trees, and they were spread randomly all throughout it. And uh, and it had that big, huge grandstand there with the grass all around it, and the fans looking down, basically at bell time on a sea of ringsiders, man. And the ring down there had a brilliant light above it, and you know. I don't know of any other way to describe it other than to just say it was absolutely beautiful. It was a beautiful setting. Wow. And when the bell to start the matches rang out there, uh, compared to the Coliseum, for whatever reason, out there in that park, when the bell rang, the crowd exploded. It was like they were already primed for the matches. So I told Rob, I said, Rob, I know what's going to happen, and you do too. That crowd's going to pop when they ring that bell. And I said, that's when you want to introduce the car. And he said, <laughs> so you know. And he says, well, how do how do what do you want? How do we how you want to do that, Ron? And I said, well, I said, tell Rainey to go to the ring. He's the he was the same guy that opened the show with Les. He yeah. was the announcer yeah. for not only the TV but the live matches there at the Coliseum and in the park. And I said, tell Rainy to go to the ring. And then uh, once the bell rings, you get that big pop. Then I said, have Rainy uh, direct their attention to that gate over there by the side of the concession stand. And open that gate. And uh, and then I said, uh, you know, I had him, I said, park the car where no one can see it. 
nobody sees it at all. And then I said, as soon as uh, he drives, directs their attention to that gate, I said, have the guy that's driving the car start to drive the car slowly from where nobody could see it till it gets into view. And then slowly it's going to pass through that gate. And I said, have Phil describe that automobile the entire way to the rain. Sweet. You know? And, yeah. uh, <laughs> oh, it's like revealing the birthday cake. You bring it out slowly. I mean, that's cool. I mean, obviously, you know how to paint a picture with words. So how did your brother say the car introduction went? I know Phil Rainey is about as uh, professional as it comes when it comes to stuff like that, most likely. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, Phil, Phil got with it, I'm sure. And I, I'm sure he did a great job of it. Rob said that almost every person in the entire complex was on their feet by the time that car got to the ringside. <laughs> you know, and then we sent two guys out. And you asked what we're going to do. We sent two guys out that put the steel pole stanchions, stanchions around that car. They put the red ropes, snapped the red ropes around it. And they stayed there with it until the bell rang for the final match. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay, so... Who who won it, Stud? Well, now, whoa, day, you know. Uh, before, <laughs> Come on. <laughs> uh, well, you know, but there was another match on this card. Oh, okay. You know, you don't want to end it. You want the last match to be for the car. Right. So before we get to that one, let's talk about that last match before the car finals, because it was a tremendous one, according to Rob. So that was for the Southeastern title. Uh, between the Mongolian Stomper, managed by Carson, and Ron Slinker, the United States Karate Champion, seconded by Ronnie Garvin. And uh, Rob said it was no doubt the wildest match of the night. And uh, he said Slinker had hacked and chopped the Stomper man at one point until the big ball monster man was cowering, Rob said, in the corner. <laughs> it looked like he wasn't going to come out of the corner. And he said Carson jumped up on the apron of the ring, and uh, Garvin went around to pull him off the apron. And uh, when Garvin went around the ring to get to Carson, the great Malenko, who him and Garvin had all, both been disqualified earlier in the night in their match for the car, the great Malenko brought his chain, and he got Ronnie Garvin from behind. Malenko, uh, then, he, then once he, he busted him open with his chain, mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, that, that wasn't very hard to do when you had a chain to get somebody bleeding. And then the referee started ringing the bell to disqualify the stomper for interference. Hmm. Uh, then, then Rob said Carson nailed the referee. Uh, Slinker left the ring. He went down on the, on the, the concrete uh, there in, fr in front of the big grandstand to help Garvin with Malenko. And then that gave Stomper a chance to get Slinker from behind. And he threw him back up in the ring. Carson loaded his glove, and he and Stomper went to work on Slinker. Uh, Several baby faces had to come out to stop it, and uh, Garvin was bleeding pretty badly. Uh, Slinker was hurt worse, though, Rob said. Slinker was stretchered out of the ring, and uh, he wasn't going to be back in Knoxville for, for several weeks. And then Carson's prediction on TV that Slinker was going to be gone, basically it came to pass, man, and uh, and that it only meant that uh, somebody more dangerous than Slinker's liable will be there to take his place. <laughs> All right, so it sounds like something really special is going to happen in the southeastern knoxville territory stud so so now who won the car okay uh, jimmy golden and phil hickerson were in the finals aha 
And uh, Jimmy had won the TV championship from Hickerson's partner, Dennis Condry, six days earlier on TV. And uh, now he's eyeing the big prize, man, the beautiful car. And uh, so when the bell rang for the final match of the night, the, the two men that had protected the car all night, they took the stanchions down and they slowly removed the car from the complex. They drove it back to where you couldn't see it. <laughs> so there, there was no way anybody's going to damage it. Huh? <laughs> right. Wow. So I guess that ensured this time that the car got no damage. So what happened in the finals for the car? Well, Rob said Jimmy was well on his way, man, to the new car, man. Uh, and, uh, you know, then Ron Wright went down. Obviously, he's managing Hickerson. Uh, and he was down there at ringside. And uh, he had to get involved to save his guy. And uh, the referee got in there trying to help uh, get right off the apron, and he got slammed in the back by Golden, and uh, he went down. So Wright said, uh, you know, Wright grabbed up Jimmy. Rob said Wright grabbed up Jimmy from behind, and he held him up for Hickerson to nail him. But when he went to hit him, Jimmy ducked. And uh, Rob said that stadium erupted, man. And then he said Wright went flying across the ring and uh, <laughs> fell out on the far side. And then the third man on the team, though, Dennis Condry, was on his way to the ring. Referee's down. Why not? So Jimmy slammed Hickerson, and he went up on the top rope, and he was going to finish him, man, with his patented drop kick off the top rope. And Condry sneaked up behind him. He never saw Condry coming. And uh, Jimmy's standing up there ready to drop kick him, and then Condry shoved him in the rear end. And uh, Jimmy turned the somersault and landed on his back. Condry shoved the referee, who was about to get fully recovered, over in that direction and ran back to the dressing room. Hickerson crawled over, crawled on top of Jimmy, and the referee counted him out. Oh, no. Okay, so, <laughs> wow. A totally different ending than the match for a Cadillac two years earlier. Had to be a big crowd for this event. Uh, Rock told me, he said, most of the boys, which uh, they always did, they, they always looked at the crowd and they all wanted to say, uh, well, this is how many and this is, they mm -hmm. all took a guess. It was constant. Uh, it was part of being a wrestler. Yeah. Rock said most of the boys thought it was the biggest crowd they had ever seen. Uh, wow. Wow. Uh, the box office figure was 6,600. Holy cow. All right, that, uh, wow. So it's more than the Coliseum would hold. I, that's what I was going to say, because the Coliseum was right at maybe 6,300 or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, the, in the low sixes. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I'm telling you, what a great night in that territory, both territories. Almost 10,000 total fans on that Friday night, July 14th, 1978. That's huge. So I think we are going to have time, plenty of time, for our learning tree question today, Ron. It's a young lady named Barbara Bishop from Dallas, Texas. She says, did you still have a home in Knoxville while you were wrestling and living in Pensacola? I'm sure that kind of life was difficult for you and your family. So what was that like? Was it hotels in Tennessee and a permanent place in Pensacola? What'd you do? Well, you know, that's a great question, man. And, uh, you know, and, and it gives me an opportunity to kind of step not only uh, out from behind the kayfabe curtain uh, with wrestling, but it also gives me an opportunity to, to let fans know what it was kind of like, what the life of a wrestler was all about. Uh, so, you know, the sport of professional wrestling was probably one of the most difficult to deal with, Miss Miss Bishop, I think the name. 
And uh, you move from one part of the country to another, uh, and you usually didn't have very much notice of when you're going to move. Uh, you weren't involved with any team, and uh, you had to make all your plans for yourself. You didn't have people buying your tickets to go uh, to flights. Uh, you had to get your own meals. You had to drive your own car. You really basically had no support from anyone or anywhere other than maybe an occasional wrestler, if you were lucky, that would uh, help you out or, or whatever. It was, a, it was a strange, strange type of life. Uh, I did have an apartment in Knoxville in the summer of 1978. I had that apartment the entire year of 1978 and never gave it up. And I had a second apartment in Pensacola at the same time. And, and it was not in the, in the cards, basically, for wrestlers to own homes. Just you know, because you mm -hmm. never knew how long you're going to be there yeah. and when you're going to yeah. have to leave your house, right? Yeah. Yeah. So why would you buy a home if you're only going to live there for a few months? <laughs> so that made wrestling a, a kind of a vagabond type of life, man. Uh, it, was, it was very different than other sports. I had two sons in the summer of 1978. One of them was age eight. The other was six years old. And I tried to keep them with me a lot that summer. Because we were so close to the beach in Pensacola, man. And the three of us always enjoyed it. Wow, we spent a lot of time on the beach there. And, uh, and I had friend's wife, a friend's wife that uh, could watch them for me at night when I was having to be gone. And also when I was on the road, which was just about every day. So, again, it was a difficult lifestyle. I had been divorced for two years at about this point. And, uh, it wasn't easy building a relationship because you, you weren't around very much to get to know somebody. And hardly ever at night when ladies were not working and available, you know, I was, I was working. So, so oddly enough, uh, not far away from the summer of 1978, that's what we're talking about right now in this stud cast, not too far from this stud cast, two years later, little less, in fact, I was going to be settling down in Pensacola, finding a mate, buying a home, and living a more normal life by the beginning of 1980. And at the same time, so would my brother, Robert. So would my two cousins, Roy Lee Welch and Jimmy Golden. So would Bob Armstrong and his wife, Gail, and his four sons. Wow. And for the next eight years after that, we had all bought homes settled down, and by golly, we lived in paradise. Wow. I'll tell you what, these studcasts are amazing, Ron. Rarely do we get a look at what your life was really like. You had one of the most unusual occupations on the planet. That kind of goes without saying. And folks, listen on Facebook to become friends with Ron. You can go to his Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud Facebook page, like him and follow him there, and you automatically become friends with a legend on twitter follow him at ron fuller welch on the website visit the stud on his tremendous website tnstud.com tnstud.com it's got everything great videos a photo gallery hundreds of photos of wrestlers every stud cast ever done is free 43 three-hour super stud cast or only 2.99 each well worth it you can shop the stud store all kinds of souvenirs personally autographed photos, t-shirts. I think even the mask are available like the stud war replicas and the thrilling lion novel 
Brutus. Southeastern Rewind on YouTube is still full of great shows and up-to-date information about Ron's fantastic streaming channel at ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. It's all there and always will be. This week, find two new Brutus chapters, number four and number five. See five new classic Southeastern TV shows from January of 1981. Watch an all-new Superstars of the Past, number four, with Cal Farley and the original Dutch Mantel, two of the most famous wrestling humanitarians that ever lived. Five stars of the sport are now there. Number six is coming soon with NWA world champion Terry Funk and his student Stan Hansen. The content grows weekly. Well over 130 hours now of old school wrestling entertainment and it is only the beginning. Subscribe now at ClassicContinentalWrestling.com only $4.99 per month, $39.99 per year. Fast becoming the best old school streaming site on the planet. Don't miss this special offer right now. For a limited time, get a free one-week trial on ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. Man, I don't know how you keep up with the studs. So where do we ride next week? Well, I'm going home to Knoxville, man, for a weekend. For the first time in months, uh, I'm going to wrestle partners with Ronnie Garvin against the Mongolian Stomper and the Great Malenko on a Friday night. I'm going to wrestle in Harlan, Kentucky on a Saturday night. I'm going to play softball in the charity game with the wrestling team, man, uh, that's been kicking butt uh, all summer there on the Sunday afternoon, and then get on a plane and fly back to Pensacola and wrestle in Pensacola's Municipal Auditorium Sunday night. Uh, Southeastern Gulf Coast, um, it's still growing, man, at a phenomenal pace. Uh, Ron Slinkin, who took a beating, uh, leaving Southeastern Knoxville, He's on his way down there to southeastern Gulf Coast. And uh, he's not going to be a baby face down there anymore. He's going to be a heel. And uh, he's going to become a personal friend of mine. And he's going to end up facing Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, Bob Armstrong, in all the major cities with me in his corner. And uh, one of the first really important loser-leave matches in southeastern Gulf Coast history is going to take place between Tony Charles and Eddie Sullivan. And it, it'll happen in uh, more than one city. And then uh, also in the next uh, next one, uh, they say, I'm going to mention it. You'll be talked about in the next one, but uh, in the second studcast from this one, we're going to talk about Norvell Austin. is making his very first appearance in southeastern Gulf Coast. He is going to become one of the greatest heels in that territory's history, man. <laughs> and uh, we'll be talking about him then. And hopefully we'll be able to get another learning tree question as well in next week. Thanks, everybody, as always, for listening again this week. Please tell your friends and neighbors about us and what we do here. And take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. And I just wanted to add at the end of this one, Ron, that the next Studcast is a very special one. It will be Studcast number 260 and the end of your fifth year doing these for fans all over the world. There also could be a little surprise for you next week. Number 260. Can you believe that? For Ron Fuller and the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production.
for Tennessee Stud LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.